Now it's recording. Okay. Did my whole class this morning and looked at the end to stop it, and it was never recording. So I never started recording. Oh, well. Not required to do it, but sort of nice to have it there. Okay, so yours is getting recorded. Homework number, I'll be careful what I say in this class now. <laughs> <laughs> Homework eight, due December 9th, that's Friday, two days away, yuck. Um, quiz eight was also in December 9th in class, so that'll be the list. It's going to be the sun, the eight planets, and Pluto, that's ten of the objects. Then I threw in one star and one galaxy, and the galaxy says galaxy, so if you're not sure about the names, it should be pretty obvious. So I hope everybody just gets a 12 on it, so. That will be next Friday, and the ob or this Friday, not next Friday. Next Friday will be done. Observations are due also on Friday, so if you have questions on those, you know, feel free to email me or contact me if there's any questions before they're before they're due, but not you know at 10 o'clock on tomorrow night because I probably won't get that till the next morning anyway, so it won't do you much good. Although you do have with the homework and the observations, if you're going to email them to me, you have till the end of the day. If you're going to do that and you don't have a scanner to scan in like the graphs and charts and you don't want to retype them all, you can give me those in class if you don't need them or make a copy of them and give them to me in class and then email me the write-up. So you're not struggling trying to get that because I need them before because I want to try to, I'm going to try to get them graded that weekend so that when you come in on Monday that your grade on WebCT should show everything except for the final exam. So all you need to know is what you need to get on the final exam to get an A, to get a B, to get a C, to get a, you know what you need to do. So you just you'll know what you need to what percentage you need to get on there. So hopefully that's all I'll have all that done. So so yeah. So break, make sure if you're gonna if you're not gonna be able to get me the charts or scan them or anything, just give them to me before or make a copy of them for yourself if you're gonna need them for the write-up. You know, but then you can email me that by the end of the day. Final exam for us is Monday. So. Counting down the days now, what is it, five days away? Five more days? Will be the final exam Monday here at 9 o'clock. The final exam is set and ready to go, so it's, the, it's double one of the other exams. I put it all together. I didn't separate them except by sort of chronologically. It sort of goes through the course chronologically. So the first half of the true-false questions will be from the earlier exams from that material. The second half will be from material since exam four. Same thing with the multiple choice will do the same thing. But I just doubled the amount of questions. So it's just, it's double the amount of questions. So it's twice as big as an exam. The only other thing that you have to think about that, that takes into account is that in order to make it come out to 200 points, which is what it's scheduled, that means not only is it, it's double the number of questions, but each question is double points. So that makes it, because one exam was 50 points, so doubling it would make it 100. So each question, instead of a true false being with one point, it's worth two. Instead of a multiple. So I did that, instead of giving you Four times the number of questions, which would be nice because I'd cover lots of material, I tried to focus on the more important stuff and just give you a smaller number of questions, but it does mean that they're hev more heavily weighted. So things like the essays are worth eight points and, the, and that. So. And the essays, again, there's ten essays, ten essays this time instead of five, and you choose eight instead of choosing. So you can leave off two of them this time. So we essentially just doubled one of the previous exams. So questions? No? No? Okay. Alrighty. Picture of the day then for today. Well, drawing of the day. Yes. This is actually the Kepler 22 system you may have heard about. It's been on the news a little bit recently. This is actually a planet that has now been discovered around a star about 600 light years away. And to scale, it's a little bit bigger than the Earth. So, Earth is here. 
it's a decent size bigger than the Earth. Maybe about twice its diameter it looks like, just to the sketch there. But the most interesting thing about it is that it orbits this star within what we call its habitable zone, which is something we'll be talking about a little more today. But that's essentially the area around a star where water can exist as a liquid. So if you're in too close to the star, it's too hot, and the water will all be vaporized. If you're too far away, then it's going to be too cold, and everything will be a, a solid, an ice. So in this area around, for example, here's our sun. Mercury's in much too close. It's out of the green area. It's actually not able to have liquid water on it. Even if it were, you know, if the Earth were in there, it would be hot enough that all the liquid, all the water would be vaporized. Venus is right on the inner edge, just sort of off the habitable zone. So it's iffy as to whether Venus would have been able to have liquid water at any point. Whereas the Earth and Mars, which are the two objects that we know have had liquid water on them, one does currently, one looks like it did in the past, are actually within this, what we call the habitable zone. Mars just being too small to have retained an atmosphere and retained the heat in order to actually keep, keep its water. So its water is still there, it's just now all frozen because it's lost its atmosphere. But this planet actually orbits within the green area on around its star. And it's a slightly smaller star than the sun. So the green area, the habitable zone, is a little bit closer to the star. We'll be a little bit warm, we're a little bit warm, we're at the right temperature to keep the temperature the same. And so it's one of the possibilities for, you know, outside of the solar system where life might occur. So it's one of the ones that the people at SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, will be monitoring this planet to see if there's any signs of signals from it. Now, the only thing we have to take into account there is the travel time again. So when we talk about the solar system, it was all very small. And we just finished, just got back from the edge of the universe where we were talking about billions of light years. Well, this star is 600 light years away. That means that if there, are, there is a civilization on that star right now, and they put their radio telescopes up, big radio telescopes, and point it right towards our star saying, hey, there's a planet there that could support life, they wouldn't detect anything. They would detect nothing from us because it's 600 light years away. How long have we been communicating by radio? About 100 years. So we've only sent our presence out about 100 years away from the sun. So we gotta wait, they got to wait 500 more years before they'd even get our, our very earliest signals, before any evidence of the very earliest radio signals would reach, would reach them. And the same thing is there. If they have a civilization, now it would have have to have been communicating by radio for us to detect it 600 years ago. Now it's possible, who knows how their civilization you know, evolves compared to ours. It's quite possible that it did have a civilization 600 years ago, so it's certainly worth listening to. But that doesn't mean that there's not an intelligent civilization there right now. That travel time is important. We could also send them a signal. We could point the big radio telescope, Arecibo, send signals out, send a signal out to them to communicate. And we'll get an answer in 32.11. If they get the answer right away. It takes 600 years to get there, 600 years for a return signal. So even if we send them a signal right now in 2011, it's going to take 1,200 years, 32.11, for us to get a response back. And most of us probably still won't be around then. So, so it's interesting, it's a good one to listen for, but you have all that sort of time effect that take, that take into account. We can't just send them a nice signal and say hi. 
see if there's anybody there. We won't, by the time it takes us to get a reply back, we'll be much longer. Questions? No? Then we can go on to our lecture, which is the same topic, amazingly enough. How'd they do that? All right. And our last chapter, too, so. We'll actually finish the book without, rush, without rushing too much at the end, so. which is good. So this is what we were looking at last time, and we talked about all the different evolutions. We've talked about the particles, that's what we talked about when we talked about the Big Bang and the formation of the initial particles. We've talked about formations of galaxies and stars and planets, we talked all about that. And then what we're going to be looking at now is terms of chemical evolution, biological evolution, and cultural evolution. So chemical is the next, is the next step. So in order to form life, you have to go through all these stages. And we've talked about these. You've got to have the particles in the first place. You form the galaxies, which form the stars, which form the planets. But then the planets have to form the chemicals that are the building blocks of life. So we actually have to be able to form those, too. So when we look at the Earth, we really do not know much about the Earth for the first billion years. We don't know what went on here. Why we say that, and we do know about the moon. We know a lot more about the moon in terms of that because the moon has not been as active. The Earth was just so active, the Earth would have been more like Io. It was just constantly resurfacing. It was molten. It was constantly being resurfaced, so we don't have anything left. So anything that was there, any rocks, have long since been remelted and reformed. So we can't see what things were like the first billion years ago, first billion years of the history of the Earth. We think what we had was that there were a lot of volcanic activity. The Earth would have been much more volcanically active than it is today. And our atmosphere would have been made up of hydrogen, which we don't really have now, nitrogen, we do, and a lot of carbon compounds. And as we cooled, we formed things like methane, ammonia, carbon dioxide, water. Still no oxygen. No oxygen. No oxygen yet. Oxygen doesn't come until much later. But we formed all of these different compounds. So we think these are the compounds that made up the Earth's early atmosphere. And as you can see, they're quite different than what we have right now. We don't have much hydrogen in the atmosphere. It's all gone. Any hydrogen that we did have is either now trapped into water or has escaped out into space. Nitrogen we do have. Carbon compounds, we don't have a lot of methane, ammonia in the atmosphere. We do have carbon dioxide and water. So some of them have been broken apart by you know, solar activity. Solar heat has broken apart methane. If you break apart things like methane, which is made of carbon and hydrogen, you can form things like carbon dioxide and Hydrogen, and the hydrogen can form to form water. Ammonia is nitrogen and hydrogen. So the nitrogen, again, can form nitrogen in the atmosphere if that gets broken apart. And the hydrogen can, again, either escape or form into water. So we're forming all of these, but this is what we think possibly the early atmosphere was like, quite different than the atmosphere we have today. Right now we have nitrogen, primarily nitrogen, a uh, good, good, good amount of oxygen and some argon and a few little trace elements, some carbon dioxide, some water vapor, and a few little other traces, not a lot of other stuff. 
It was also subject to volcanic activity. We think a lot of storms, so a lot of lightning. It was much more radioactive. A lot of the materials that were present in the early Earth that heated it up were radioactive that formed it. And most of them are long gone now. They have very short, much shorter half-lives and they disappear real quickly. There was also a lot more ultraviolet radiation than there is now because we didn't have things like the ozone layer that was keeping the materials, keeping the ultraviolet radiation out. So a lot of that ultraviolet radiation was penetrating into the Earth's atmosphere. And as I mentioned, it was partly responsible for breaking apart things like methane and ammonia into their components because it's such high energy those particles can sort of rip the, rip the molecules apart into their component atoms. There were also a lot more impacts that we had at the time. So a lot more impacts then than we have now. And what we think happened over that first billion years that we don't have any evidence from is that we think we slowly formed the amino acids. Now amino acids are not, not living. They're not a living creature. They are just the basic building block that goes into building our DNA. So the amino acids are what goes into building all the bases that come together to be our DNA. This we think can happen because we can reproduce this. Can't create life, but we can create amino acids from the stuff that I just told you on the other screen, from the methane and the ammonia and water and lightning and all of that. If you put all that together in an experiment, we can actually get organic materials out. Not living creatures, but amino acids can very easily be formed. So we've been able to do that. And that's the example of the Uri Miller experiment, which was first done in the 1930s now, which said that if you took that atmosphere and you made the atmosphere similar to what we think the Earth's early atmosphere was, put a little wire through there to put sparks through to simulate lightning in it, and then condense that out, and then you cool and condense that and you keep cycling through. You know, there's the hot water going into it and then you cool it coming out. The water that traps here, you actually trap material that contains amino acids. You didn't put any living material in there. You put only you know, methane, ammonia, water, carbon dioxide, what we thought the early atmosphere might have been like. And by subjecting that to the heat from the boiling water, the electrical discharges that would simulate lightning, we were able to form amino acids. Again, it's not a living creature. There's no little creature coming up and saying, hi, I'm here. It's just the amino acids that have formed, the basic building blocks of life. So something that maybe could have come into life, but it's very easy to see how these could form that it's something we were able to very easily reproduce, you know, even 80 years ago now, that we were able to reproduce this experiment, what we think would have been the early history of life on the Earth. So here's an example of some droplets. Again, this isn't just single amino acids. You're starting to get more and more here. And you're starting to get as you're forming them, they actually start to form into almost the casing of a cell. So you're using many billions of the amino acids. So you're putting the little tiny molecules together, but now they're actually stringing together and you can actually form droplets that look quite a bit like cells. Now they're not living cells. 
Again, they're just droplets that can split. They can be split and broken apart and they can grow into bigger, you know, they can combine together to grow bigger. They can split apart into smaller, sort of like big bubbles. But the sort of the building blocks, you're seeing the stages of leading towards forming life. And here's some examples just to compare to the previous image. There's some fossils that are about two billion years old. So again, that first billion we don't know much about. The Earth is about four and a half billion years old. But if we go about two billion years ago, we actually see some objects that are relatively similar. These are probably single-celled creatures. This would be a little further along. And the one on the right is actually algae. And again, you see the same sort of spherical shapes in living creatures. So it's not that they form, be able to form living creatures, even single-celled ones, with the experiment, but they have objects that are, that are coming similar that could be the building block building up to that part, building up to actually being life. So it's mainly what you're looking at is the size and how the sizes compare, that they're, about, they're roughly about the same shape and size. Now outside of that, there's also other sources of organic molecules, not just from the Earth. You can also form them in more of a freezing, a freezing. You don't, you don't need hot temperatures, I guess what I should say. You can do them with much colder temperatures. So if you take that material and instead of making it, you know, gases, what you can make it is a more of a slushy mixture. And if you do that and subject that to very strong radiation, you can also form, again, drops that are very rich in these amino acids. So we found amino acids not only in these experiments making up the Earth to make, up the, make the history of the early Earth's atmosphere, but we've also found them in comets, meteorites, and actually in molecular clouds out in space that form stars. They're also out there. So the, again, not, not living creatures, but the building blocks are very easy to form. It's, amino acids are very easy materials to form. But not necessarily, you know, those are very easy to form, but not actually how do you get the, from this step to jump to a living cell, even a very simple single-celled creature, is a big jump. There's a big difference between you know, an amino acid and a living, even a single cell, let alone a more complex life form. So here's an example of a meteorite that was found, fell in Australia. And they found the amino acids, so it contains the same amino acids that are found on life here. Although not all exactly, some slight differences. There are apparently some slight differences to them. So not exactly the same. So there's possibilities that life elsewhere could differ in some ways, you know, in a in an atomic way, it differ from life on Earth. It might not be all exactly the same. But the basic building blocks, you know, here's from a meteorite from out in space that actually contained all of the amino acids. But we could tell they were a little bit different than the Earth, than what we find on Earth. So they weren't exactly the same. They were, they were close. They were close enough easily to be identified, but not exactly the same. But again, it's a very, very small little thing and the little point, point there is pointing to one of the inclusions of the amino acid, what you'd see. So sort of similar to all of those little round objects that we've been looking at for the last thing. But the big question is how you can get from one to the other. It's, you've seen the amino, amino acids are very easy to form. Getting to that next step is the, is the hard part.
So, looking a little bit on Earth, how long did it take? Well, we don't know. We have evidence of single-celled creatures from about three and a half billion years ago. But again, we don't know whether they first formed then or they formed even earlier because we don't know much about that first billion years of the Earth's history. We don't know what went on that first billion years. It's all been wiped out by activity on the Earth, weathering, volcanic activity. It's all been wiped out. But it took, it took, it took at least, a, it took around a billion years possibly for the first single-celled creatures to form. And those are the first ones that we actually have evidence of. More complex single-celled creatures, those are the very simple things like algaes. Even in amoeba, we're talking about two billion years. So it took us a billion and a half years to go from very simple single-celled creatures to a more complex single-celled feature creature. So it took us, so now we're already two and a half billion years in from the formation of the Earth and we're up to amoeba. To see and find multicellular organisms, that took about another billion years before we see any evidence of those. So three and a half billion years to go from the formation of the Earth to objects with more than one cell. That's not just complicated animals and plants, that's just organisms that have more than one cell. We're still not talking anything about ours. Our human civilization, just for comparison, is the last 10,000 years. So everything that the human civilization has been, depending on where you put it, is about 10,000 years old. So we're very, very recent on the scale of the Earth. I mean, our entirety of civilization, and if you want to look at this as our what we consider a technological society that we could actually detect has only been about the last hundred years. So I said, we've only broadcast our, even the star 600 light years away can't tell that we're a technological civilization here. You know, if they had that super magnifying telescope, they could look at us and see us as we were in 1411. You know, 600 years ago, that's the light that's gotten to them. So if they had a big telescope somehow that could actually zoom in and just pick out the Earth, don't know how you do that, but you'd actually see us, you know, from four, it wouldn't be a very, very technological civilization back 600 years ago. So, it's taken, the idea is it's taken a long time and we're going to look at this in terms of talking about how many, what types of stars to look around, to look for planets around. You know, if this is typical, if this is how long it takes life to develop, that to even get to a multicellular organism, or something that could communicate takes four and a half billion years, then you don't want to look around a star, those real hot young stars that are nice and bright and shine real gloriously, but burn out in a million or two million or ten million years. Well, they didn't have near enough time for a planet to have gone through all these stages. Even some of the cooler stars, some of the stars only last a billion years. That's still relatively long. Or, f- or two billion years. Well, they wouldn't have gotten to that stage. You know, they could, they could be becoming red giants about the time you know, amoeba are appearing. So you may need to look at the very, the coolest stars, stars like the sun or even cooler as possibilities for ones to look at for life. So, where is life? Well, first of all, we got to go by what we know. And that's, again, a bias. So, we're going by what we know, but everything's based on carbon and depends on liquid water. So, if we're going by, by that definition of life, where are we likely to find life in our solar system? Well, Mars would be the best bet. Most likely, you ca- you had, we had evidence of liquid water on Mars. And all the other 
conditions would have been good earlier in the history of the solar system. Maybe Europa, maybe Titan. Remember Europa had the ocean below the surface and we looked at actually a picture of that a little earlier that had some of the oceans that were closer to the, even closer to the surface that gave better ideas of life. And Titan, the moon of Saturn, which has the atmosphere. The atmosphere is a little bit denser than the Earth, but it's quite similar in terms of having lots of nitrogen and a lot of carbon compounds. There'd probably be a good chance that organic molecules could have formed there. But not so, not necessarily life. Pretty much any place else in the solar system you can rule out. I mean, not very likely that Mercury has living creatures on it of any kind. It's too hot, it doesn't have anything else that we think of. There's no chance for liquid water, so it would be unlikely to have anything else. So pretty much in terms of, again, life as we know it, based on carbon and requiring water, there's about three places in the solar system that might be possible to have, have life. Pretty much every place else is not possible. Well, what about other things? What if we don't base on what if we don't base things on carbon? What if we don't base them on water? You know, we could use silicon. Silicon on the periodic table is actually quite similar to carbon chemically. And if you look at it here, carbon happens to be right here. Silicon is right below it. And if you've done chemistry, each of the columns are very, all the elements are very similar, similar in their chemical properties. So all of, the, all of the elements in this one, in this column would be very similar. So silicon would be the next one that would be most likely. It could actually form chains of molecules. But it doesn't form easily as complex a chain. Carbon forms real long chains very easily. Silicon forms some chains, but doesn't seem to form them quite as complicated as carbon. So we would think that if there's silicon and carbon present, that the carbon would take over. The carbon would dominate because it forms those long chains so much easier. Again, we're looking at our bias, too. We're saying that's all we know, so of course carbon's going to take over. Could there be conditions where silicon would be? And there, there could be. The other, other thing could be, well, you don't have to have water. You could use ammonia or methane if you're further out in the solar system. You could have ammonia or methane could be your water. It sounds disgusting, doesn't it? You know, drink, drink, drink a glass of ammonia, right? Wouldn't be very pleasant. But if the creature, of course, grew up on that, they'd probably say the same thing about water. You know, can't drink that stuff. And they could. Those could be other possibilities. We talked about, you know, methane, you know, methane rain on Titan. So maybe Titan actually could have liquid methane. The difficulty with that is that ammonia or methane only become liquid at much lower temperatures than water. And we do know that chemical reactions occur much faster at higher temperatures. The higher you heat something up, the faster the reaction goes. The colder it is, the slower the reaction goes. That doesn't mean it couldn't happen, but it might take a longer time. So does it work with that, but does it take, instead of we took four and a half billion years to get to our level on Earth, would it take 10 billion years, 20 billion years? Could it be done? Yes. But maybe it would take a significantly longer amount of time. Or maybe we were just slow. You know, maybe life usually goes a lot faster, but for some reason here on Earth, we just took our good old time and took billions of years to go through these stages where other, some other place went zoom, you know, went through, the, went through them in no time. So again, we're biased and we're going to keep seeing that because we only have one object that we've detected life on. 
And that's all we have to go by is what we see here. We can't go and say, well, you know, here's 20 different civilizations and 10 of them did this and 5 of them, you know, you don't have that kind of statistics. When you only have one, you can't tell whether it's unusual or maybe it went incredibly fast. You know, maybe life on Earth formed incredibly quickly compared to what it should. Maybe it typically takes 20 billion years. So stars like the sun wouldn't be ones that would have life. And it would be only much smaller, cooler stars that actually could last a lot longer. So just to keep that in mind, that there is a big bias there in terms of what we're, what we're doing. All right. How about in the galaxy? How many intelligent, how many intelligent live civilization, intelligent civilizations are there in, a, in the galaxy? And you should say when we say intelligent, we talk about ones that can communicate to us. So we would not have been considered, by this definition, we wouldn't have been considered an intelligent technical society until the advent of radio communication. So only for about 100 years. So this is the Drake equation, which you'll get to see again on Friday. But it is, we estimate a whole big, big set of numbers and put a whole, big, a whole number of terms together. And if we know exactly what all the terms are, we can calculate exactly how many intelligent civilizations there are in the galaxy. So you start off with all the stars in the galaxy. And we're going to go through this in more detail. But you'd look at what fraction of those stars have planets. So is it a big chunk of this initial square or is it a very small chunk? How about the ones that, have, that are livable? How about how many of those, how, what percentage of those planets or how many of those planets are going to actually be ones you could live on? You know, in our solar system, we have eight planets. But there's one, maybe two, that are actually in the life zone. So there's actually two that might be in that habitable area, you know, one or two. So you'd narrow things down a little bit more there. How easy is it to form simple life? How easy is it to form intelligent life? How, long, how easy is it to form technology at all, any kinds of technology, a technical society? And then finally, how long does that technical society last? And that's the big one, because we have no clue there. You know, we've been communicating for 100 years, and is that is that good? Do most civilizations destroy themselves in 20 years or 30 years after developing the, after developing you know a technical a communicative society, or you know are we just in the beginning and is there a million years to go still? And what we're going to see is that we know some of these numbers pretty well. I can get you a pretty good estimate and tell you pretty close how many stars there are in the Milky Way galaxy. We can probably get some pretty good estimates on how many planets and even planetary habitable planets there are there. And then we start to get into ones that we have no clue. That is just a guess. And that's what we're going to look at on Friday. We'll look at you know, what kind of estimates we can make and what that tells us about how many civilizations there might be in the galaxy. So here's the equation. And all it says is that the number of, the number of technological intelligent civilizations that are now present in our galaxy. So how many civilizations are, in there, are there in our entire galaxy? And all we have to do is take a rate of star formation. How many stars does the galaxy form in a typical year? That gives us essentially the number of stars to start with. And we multiply by what fraction of those stars are going to have planetary systems. So how many, how many of those stars? Are half of them going to have planets? All of them? A tenth of them? You know, it's an estimate. I mean, we a pretty, we're getting pretty good ideas on that now. How many of those are going to be habitable? Is there, you know, is one or two typically habitable or could there be more or could there be lots of 
solar systems where there'd be very few planets with habit habitable that could be habitable, that are in the right area and the right size. You know, if you put a Jupiter-like planet right where the Earth was, it's not going to be very habitable because it's all gaseous. There's not going to be something that would form life, again, life as we know it. Now, then come the fun ones. And we're going to go over these all de in detail over the next slides, but what fraction of those habitable planets does life actually arise? Well, I can get pretty good estimates maybe on these, but that's a tough one because we only have one example. We only know one planet where any kind of life has arisen for sure. And they get worse because if you're forming life, you know, this could be very easy. Could it be all of them? 90% of them? You know, 90% of the habitable planets form life? Or could it be one in a million? One in a billion? That's a very wide open number. And it gets even harder because we have even less information. We talk about, you know, does life become automatically become intelligent? Or are there lots of planets out there that are, you know, have inhabited by amoeba that are going to really respond to our radio signals that we're sending them? You know, they don't care. Finally, if you get intelligence, does it become technological? You know, again, we're, we're biased by ours, but you could, could you form an intelligent, intelligent civilization based on dolphins? Are they going to be technological and have radio communications? Yeah, I don't know how they're going to do it, but maybe, they're, you know, maybe over billions of years, if they had become the dominant, they might have come up with something. But you know, do you automatically go to become a technological society just because you're becoming intelligent life? And then finally, the hardest one is how long does that civilization live? Does it average 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000, a million? Or do, once it forms, does it go on for what, last billions, a billion years till the star is gone? It's a good question and it's wide open because again, with all of those, we only have ours. And even with these three, you know, at least we have one example where it's true. Here we don't even know. We don't know what the, average, what the lifetime of our technological civilization will be. You know, we know 100, we got 100 years, but again, we only have one. We don't have 50 different ones that we can go average together and say, well, they lasted a million years, but the rest of these only lasted 10. You know, so we don't know. So we're going to look at each of these in a little bit more detail. And what we find is that star formation, that's the easy one, about 10 stars per year. So we're forming, on average, over the entire history of the Milky Way galaxy, it forms about 10 stars per year. So that number we know pretty well. Yay, one. It's about the only one we know pretty well. We got some ideas on the others. Fractions of stars having planetary systems. Mm, tougher. How many stars have planets? We're starting to find a lot more. And even since some of these slides have been written, things have changed. The Kepler satellite has found a lot of planetary systems. It's got, what is it, up to like 600 or 700 right now, I think, that they've detected. And there's thousands of possible candidates that have not been confirmed yet. So we've actually detected those. And the interesting thing about that is that detecting those 600 or so planetary systems, there, it takes a very special case in order for Kepler to detect them. Kepler can't always detect those, detect every, every system. For example, if we had our sun, uh, I don't have a very good marker here, sorry. But if we had, if you're looking on, at the planet like this, and you have a sun here, you're looking at the star, you know, at the center there, and a couple of planets orbiting it, if Kepler looks at that solar system, it can't detect it. It has no way to detect that. The way that satellite is set up, it will never see it. 
it'll only see the one where you have the sun or the star and where the planets are orbiting when you're looking at it edge on. So it can't see this because what it does is it looks for eclipses. It looks for that planet to pass in front of the star and cause it to dim. That's how we detect its location. A planet orbiting around here is never going to pass in front of that star and we're never going to see it. So finding six or seven hundred of very special cases where it's almost exactly edge on seems to tell me that there's a lot of planetary systems out there because Kepler couldn't detect anything that's you know, even slightly tilted. If it doesn't pass right in front of that star, you're not going to see it. So it's only these very special cases that Kepler can detect. So finding 600 of these seems to tell me that there's a lot of planetary systems out there and it might be a very high percentage of stars that actually have planetary systems. But again, we only have 600 out of how many billions, billions of stars in the galaxy so far that are confirmed. But because of the way we detect them, I think that's a pretty good bet that there are actually a lot more. I think it's a pretty good bet that there's actually a lot more than that. Now the habitable planets. How many habitable planets do we have in each planetary system? Well, first of all, you throw out some of the stars and you tend not to consider the very hottest stars, the O and the B stars, because they only live for 5, 10 million years. So they're all going to be dead and gone and blow up long before we think a civilization would have formed. So we don't usually include those. We also tend to throw out the M stars. If you can see the little faint red star at the center there, probably not. But you can see how small the life zone is around it. It's only a very, very narrow range around it where you could happen to form a planet that would have be at the right temperature. Because that's a much cooler star, you have to be so much closer to it. Stars like the sun, so maybe a little bit hotter, or maybe the K stars, a little bit cooler, would be much more likely to have a reasonably big life zone that might have, in our case, two planets that exist in it. So, but again, to tell how many, now we just showed you the beginning of class, one. We found one planet outside of, the, outside of our solar system. We've now found one other that's actually close enough to Earth's size and within the habitable zone around its star. So now we have two. It's still not enough to do any kind of statistical study with. So we want to look at those stars. It was a star, it was a, G it was a star similar to the sun, that one. It was actually quite si rather similar, a little bit, little bit smaller. But we have to look at the specific type of stars and we've got to consider, you know, could we have an average of one planet or two planets, you know, that could have life within each solar system. And then also, we also have to look at where they are in the galaxy. We've got lots of stars in the center of the near the center of the galaxy. But we don't think that would be a very, a very good place to look for life. Because although you have lots of stars there, you've also got the radiation level, considering that there's a central black hole and the radiation all from the center is much, much higher until you get further out. We don't think that would be a very likely part of the galaxy to form life. Again, we're looking at our biases. We don't like radiation. You know, it tends to do damaging things to us. Maybe there's another type of life that actually loves the radiation and lives. So, you know, again, I'm giving you the basics, but we're, a lot of things we're looking at are biased based on our own considerations. So we think that there's also a habitable zone within the galaxy. So you don't want to go too close to the center and you don't want to go too far out. 
Because if you go way out to the very outer edges of the galaxy, there's not as many stars, so there haven't been as many supernovae. And remember I told you the Big Bang made hydrogen and helium. So most of what you're going to have out there is not a lot of heavier elements. You're not going to have a lot of things like carbon and nitrogen and other elements that we need to form life. You're going to have a lot more hydrogen and helium. So we don't know how easy it would be to form a planet like the Earth out here. So looking within that, within the, even within the galaxy, we tend to look at there's a specific area that we want to do, we want to look at within the galaxy. So you can throw out a number of stars that are too far out and a number of stars that are too far in to the galaxy. And finally in terms of this, we don't think like a binary star systems are one of the problems. A binary star system is very difficult to get a stable orbit for a planet because you have two strong sources of gravity. So your two options are you either have a binary star system where the stars are way far, far apart and don't come close together and you could have a planet maybe orbiting one of those stars or you could have the two stars relatively close together in the planet forming a wide orbit around both of them. You can get some other interesting potentially stable orbits. You know, a little figure eight here, now wouldn't that be a cool planet to live on? Forming a little figure eight in its orbit and two stars and you get here, you know, when you're right here you've got one star there and one star there and you never have day and you never, you never have day or you all day, no night. You never have a night time. Or you get to other times over here where both stars are in the sky at the same time. So it would be a very interesting night-day cycle that you'd get. You know, sometimes you could have two stars up or you could have one sun setting as another sun was rising. So there's a few examples, but we think and a, a lot of stars that are formed in binary systems, and a big chunk of them are, might not be very good ones to have life. And if I'm recalling correctly, I think most of the Kepler ones, if not all of them, have been single stars. I think they may have been looking primarily at single stars. So as an estimate, we said one in ten. So we're going to give them specific values and then we're going to go through and do a calculation which we'll finish up on on Friday. But if we said there's one, that means there's one habitable planet in every ten planetary systems. So if you have ten, you know, ten solar systems, one of those planets would be habitable. Then what we're going to go on to on next time is do the, is go through the rest of the factors. So I'll finish this up on Friday. I am stopping here because we have a Corsi assessment quiz to give you. It's not graded. You don't put your, don't put your name on it even. So it's just five questions based on the scientific method. So stuff that I have talked about a little bit. They've given us the questions later so I didn't, some of them's terminology might be a little bit different. Do your best. It's the first semester we're doing this. So you're not being graded on it. We're just trying it out to get sort of a baseline for it. So all I need, I'm going to give you a Scantron sheet. All you need to write on that is Astronomy 104. So they're trying to look at, we're looking at the classes and seeing where we got things, you know, where we need to work. But we're not specifically looking at students, so don't put your name on it at all. We're not looking at what the students got, so. Okay. And I'm going.